0: I don't think land should be something that's handed down from generation to generation. I think that you have, if your, if your father farmed it, bought this land or he farmed it, then you have to prove yourself worthy of farming it and, and taking care of it in order for you to take it, inherit it. How much wealth around the world is passed on from generation to generation? You know, it's it's sad that there's so much wealth. That if it was spread around evenly, everybody would be wealthy. Yeah. But when we concentrate it all in one, one small group of people, like what are like, ten percent of the world, people own eighty percent of the wealth of the world. It's sad that we've allowed it to come to that. And I think the organic movement is a way. I hope it's a way of addressing that in a very practical way that you know we we are not going to we've had all we can stand and we can't stand no more. Yeah. We're not we're not gonna allow ourselves to be walked on by people who have whatever wealth that they feel like they're entitled to.
1: Yeah
2: Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. Were a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Jim Durst, a longtime organic vegetable grower who farms hundreds of acres in Yolo County, California. My co-director Dave Chapman spoke to Jim last fall about what it's like to farm organically among a community of farmers who just don't want to have anything to do with it. They also spoke about fair labor practices and about the challenges of land ownership for future generations.
3: I'm welcoming Jim Durst today to the Real Organic Project podcast, Jim. I just spent two wonderful hours touring your farm. It's fantastic. So tell me a little bit about your farm. We've, We've talked about this, but just how did you get started? How big is it? A little, few things like that.
0: Um, we started, I started, I was working with my brother. We were farming conventionally and in the 80s. And in 83 or 84, we put in 20 acres of organic wheat. And actually it turned out to be a really good crop. But um, I didn't have any market for it. You'd grown up on a farm in California? I grew up on a farm, yes. My dad was a dryland farmer, as was his dad, and as was his dad. Wow. And uh, they were raising grain and sheep, so that was their rotation. Um, the, The livestock would come in and feed off the stubble after the grain crop came off, and then the following year, the livestock would be put back on the fields and would feed down the the spring crop that came in, whether it kind of weeds or whatever was planted, not planted. And then the sheep in turn would fertilize everything. And then the third year, they would go back in and put grain again. And that was the cycle. And it was kind of self-sustaining. It was, they didn't, he never put any fertilizer on anything. He just grew grain and raised livestock. And they timed it just right so that the crop was worked in and the cover, the non cover crop or the weeds were worked in in the spring, and they broke down by, by there was enough moisture in the ground they would break down, yeah, and then the following year they'd come back in with grain so it was a it was rudimentary, but it was not something you would get they did very well on it, but i it's something you wouldn't you wouldn't get rich on today you wouldn't even be able to pay the bills i think
3: were were they selling wool or were they selling more they were sell,
0: they were selling grain they were selling wool they were selling. Lambs, yeah, for for for, and so they kept their their good use for breeding stock.
3: Okay, about how many acres was that?
0: I think they probably had five to seven hundred acres they farmed. Yeah, and in any, any one year there might be two hundred acres in grain, and the rest was part of this circular cycle of resurgence. And was it close to this? Yeah, it was north of here a little bit. And yeah, my grandfather he bought this. He bought this house. He bought this property, I think, in about 1920s, 17 or something. And then he, there was another house here. They tore the house down. They put up, he built a new house.
3: Yeah. So you came along. You had <laughs> I,
0: different ideas. I came along, you know, we're me, uh, myself and my siblings. I had six brothers and sisters and we grew up in... The 50s and 60s, yeah, and um, I kind of took off. I kind of got interested in organic farming, mostly by reading some of Rodale's stuff, yeah, and things. And there was, it was a, a whole movement at that time in the 60s of getting back to the land. And there was uh, some people who were starting organic farms in the San Francisco Bay Area, north of San Francisco. UC Davis was. Somewhere around this area even in our area <clears throat> so I guess just through assimilation I got yeah it was something I believed in I gardened when I was young I went out and I lived in I got recruited to work in the Pacific uh, for two years in 1974 and 75 and I was working on small scale farm development there just help me get a little more
3: context the the Was this Vietnam War era? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: I was, I graduated in 69, from 1969, from high school. Yeah. So it was, you know, the Tet Offensive was in 68. Yeah. And um, uh, just the people were getting tired of being lied to by the government. And there was also just a whole, culture or counterculture, we called it, the counterculture of people who were, didn't really buy into the capitalistic system of go to school and get a job and, you know, raise kids and send them to school like them, get a good jobs and then retire from your job after 60 years and die a few years later. You know, they thought there was, I think, more to life than that, and are, they were all on the way to find out what it was.
3: Yeah. So, you wanted to grow organically. This is, There was a
0: political background to this. <laughs> well, I think it was because I felt I was probably indoctrinated by Rodale. I mean, and not only him, there was a lot of other writers at that time who were doing kind of a lot of them were Tennessee and Kentucky and like, like Wendell Berry yeah Wendell Berry Wendell Berry yeah, yeah. and he's he was definitely a, an influence and I think the fact of living closer to nature and more in tune with nature and the natural processes and seeing ourselves as an intricate part of that process see and not set apart from it yeah as, we're not there to conquer we're there to live in harmony with and so so being I began just questioning and reading and trying to find find a pathway for my for myself
3: so what did your family think of this I mean you know there was a time where there was often as as your generation was stepping away from what had been yeah and and, you know it was a time of real turbulence how did they feel
0: I'll speak to it from the perspective of my dad it yeah. was a, most of my brothers and sisters were probably of similar understanding and, or they were at least questioning and my dad he his first statements about doing anything organic he says that won't work that doesn't work and um, he would he wouldn't argue with me but he would that was basically what he, he didn't argue with our kids, with the kids, and he also gave us all the freedom to do what you want to do, figure it out for yourself. And so whenever anybody came along and said, you can't do that, it just kind of became an impetus for me to try to figure out how to do it. Because who likes a challenge? I mean, who, who doesn't like a challenge? Yeah. All right, so how did it work? How'd it go? If I had a dollar for every mistake I made, I could have retired a long, long time ago. Yeah. But I've come to learn since that time that we learn from our mistakes, not from our successes. And I've tried to instill that into my employees who are always afraid to take a, to venture forth or pioneer in some way because they don't want to make a mistake. And I always encourage them to, you try it. You don't know until you try it. But if you don't try it, then you don't know, period. Yeah. And I've, that's the kind of culture I've tried to instill on our farm that you're you have the freedom here to experiment. You have the freedom to try things. And a lot of the things we do today we would we weren't doing twenty years ago. We weren't even some of them we weren't even doing five years ago. So I think in agriculture and especially in organic agriculture, we're forever uncovering these little gemlets of truth and relationship that we never knew before and sometime in the future they may not be true to us anymore yeah something else may take their place yeah but, but right now that is what that is our task
3: so you started and you didn't know what you were doing and it's interesting because really at that point in the world of organic farming who did yeah you know it was it was you know there were organic principles they were still good principles they are the same principles that we have today but but how to actually create a, a farm that would survive is is it's a it's a tall thing especially if you're not experienced and there's nobody to ask
0: yeah and there you know at that time even the university system had no experience they had no expertise i remember we had people from the university come out here measuring our cover crops and they were showing us how you know we were growing vetch I think at that time and how to cut a three-foot circle and you know take cut all the organic matter and put it in a scale and weigh it and you could kind of compute the, the tons of organic matter you're putting back into the ground and I'm looking back on that right now and I said man that little patch of vetch didn't produce any organic matter now we have cover crops that are six feet tall and there's tons and tons and tons of organic matter that goes back into the ground so you know at that time you know we we had the principles right we just didn't have the practices and so I've spent the rest of my life trying to figure out the practices that that probably sustain those principles in the long run yeah yeah
3: I've, so in, in the world of California, y- you have about 900 acres. Yeah. And that is considered a, a smallish farm. I'd say it's mid sized. Mid sized mid, yeah. farm. And uh, so they're much bigger farms. Like for me, you know, nine, as I told you, 900 acres in Vermont is pretty much all the organic vegetables in the state. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, the farms are much smaller, small intensive market gardens. I, I love what you're doing here. I really respect it. Um, but California is different. Agriculture is different here. Uh-huh. Tell me about California agriculture. Well,
0: it's a different and it's the same. I mean, we have a lot of small farms. I think in over time, it's much more difficult to sustain the small farms in the marketplace and in the, and in the pocketbook. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're, if you're relying on your own labor as soon as you hire one or two people, you've got to double your production just to pay the cost of the labor. Yeah. And you know, you, I, myself, I felt the way to access the wholesale and retail markets was to, you had to get a little bigger. Three, three to 10 boxes of tomatoes doesn't really garner the attention of too many retailers. But if you show up with 50 boxes of tomatoes, and, and then you can start accessing wholesalers. So, I did farmers. We did, in in addition to the um, to the uh, retail stuff, we were also doing some farmers markets when we first started out. But they were really labor intensive for a little bit of uh, a little bit of cash and it was a cash market, so that was kind of nice, but after all the work, you know, it was like you worked. going to a farmer's market was like a a 12 or 14 or 16 hour day, by the time you picked and packed and loaded and unloaded and set it out and sold and talked to everybody and poke them, pick everything up and clean it up and put it back in your truck and bring it back and and dispose of it or something, you had a long day in there and You know, I could have a truck come to my farm and pick up one pallet i and make as much money as I did a whole day at a farmer's market. And I said, maybe this is what I want to try to do. I think maybe there's more of a financial reward to it because I also had to make money at what I was doing. You know, you can't. principles are nice, but they don't always put food on the table.
3: Yeah. At this point, you feel that the farm has matured to a place of of being financially viable
0: um, yeah you know I <clears throat> I think in I think somewhere around the year two thousand um, my wife and I Deborah and I sat down and we just decided what do we need to do to make this farm work Just a real simple question, but it's one we never really asked and uh, we just came up with like 10 things that we need to do if it's going to work. And we just started working on them and things slowly but surely began to change. And as the markets grew, you know, our experience grew and then we needed a little more land. Every year we increased our acres a little bit in order to maintain a proper rotation. We needed a little more land. So, you know, we didn't go from five acres to a hundred acres overnight it was a slow steady buildup, and I feel that's that was probably a smart move to to do things slow and learn as you go it's easy to lose a whole lot of money in one year if you don't know what you're doing yeah
3: yeah sometimes it's easy even if you do know what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) yes that's true (laughs) so uh I know that you're you're very generous with sharing what you have learned and uh, I learned a lot about growing tomatoes today and, and I, I know a lot about growing tomatoes yeah. so that was really fun for me. Um, are you, you know, you were young when you started this. You're not so young now. I'm just curious, are, is there a community that has grown and it's got generations and And there's an information transfer and uh, a mutual support?
0: You know, there's a lot more information available through the different schooling systems we have right now about organic farming than there ever was when we were in school. I mean, there's, there's, there's actually nonprofit organizations that teach you how to be an organic farmer and, you know, how to start small and how to market and things like that. You know, when we were doing it, it's like, who do you ask? Well, you go hopefully you have a friend or a neighbor who has some experience that maybe knows something about the best tomato variety or has at least can refer you to one. And now, you know, we I you know, I'm looking looking back and even looking around, we've accumulated so much experience that I feel is kind of invaluable and you know even though I'm 70 years old I think it's time I've been spending my time trying to move what I teach what teach the people who work for me what I've learned so that they when they go out and they see a problem in a field they know what it means they don't have to you know run and not respond or respond in an inappropriate manner.
3: Yeah. So let's talk about the people who work with you, because you know you have, I think, um, strong beliefs, and and you've made those beliefs work. Mm-hmm. So you, you you pay people pretty well to work here.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I let's put it this way: I like to pay people a living wage. Yeah. And I, I I spend a lot of my time working for a below living wage, and I don't look back and say. Damn, I, I knew I should have got that PhD. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I feel like there's a lot more pressure on people today because the cost of living is so much higher, especially in California, that a living wage is, is important. And when it comes down to deciding between, you know, rent and food and education for your kids or whatever, you know, I want people to, I want my employees to know that, um, you, know, I, you know, you can do this and you can make it and, you know, if we have some people picking cherry tomatoes that are making, you know, 40, 50, 60 bucks an hour, it's part of an incentive program and they work really hard, but they can't go do that at McDonald's or they, there's other types of entry level positions. And I say entry level, I mean that I don't in any way... Um, belittle that type of work. It's very skilled, and it's, it takes a lot of skill to do what they do. And I respect that. And I've worked in all these jobs, and I've worked on a farm, and I know what it's like to be out in the field when it's 110 or 12 degrees. And I, I know what it's like to be have dirty restrooms, and I don't want that on anybody. It's a, that's one thing. I w- you know I really believe that you do not treat anybody in any way except the way you would treat yourself. So, uh, you know that's
3: uh, what it means to be a decent human being. But I'm, and and I mean that. Uh You know that that that's reason enough to do that. But of course, uh, a lot of people feel that they can't afford to be a decent human being. So I'm going to suggest that that you have found a way to make that work for everybody, and that. That by paying people more, the farm is able to make more. It's able to afford to pay the people here more. And my sense is that because you have such skilled people and they work really hard and they stay, that the whole thing gets better. Is that true? Did I get that right?
0: You know, we, we've sat down. One thing we did back in 2000 is we, need to, we had to know what it cost us to do what we were doing. You don't. You can't set the price if you don't know what it costs you. So if it costs you twenty dollars to pick a, to grow and pick and, and sell a, a box of cherry tomatoes, and you're selling it for fifteen, eventually the bank will catch up with you, or somebody will. But if you know that it costs you four dollars to grow and har, you know to harvest, or to say it costs you ten dollars to grow a box of cherry tomatoes and it costs you uh, $2 to, uh, for fertility and for irrigation, and it costs you $2 for overhead, and it costs you $2 for seed. That's $6 and it's costing you $12 to, to grow it. That gives you $4 in there. So we need to harvest. So how, how, how can we take that $4 and give, the, and, and give it to our worker? So we decided that we have this, we, we through, through, uh, through the help of a guy from UCD named Gregory Billikoff, we set up this incentive system. So for everybody, if you're harvesting in cherry tomatoes or whatever crop, we have different incentives for different crops Then cherry tomatoes. If you, if for every box you pick, you get $4. Well, the, our minimum wage on the farm is 16. So you're automatically guaranteed 16. But say if you do five boxes, then you got five times four, you got 20 bucks an hour. And if you do six boxes, you got $24 an hour. And if you do seven boxes, you do $28 an hour, consequently, it doesn't cost us any more. It only costs us $4 a box. So I don't, my job is to convince them, and I mean them, the people who are harvesting, you pick as many boxes as you pick because I want your paycheck to be good. But it doesn't cost me any more money. And our farm makes its margin. It's not like you have to take money out of your margin to pay your employees more money. It's built into the sales system and the harvest system. And now, well, I,
3: I think it's common when they do start picking eight boxes an hour, you change the
0: rate. No, we don't. No, I know well, you don't. It is common. I'm just saying that's okay. what people do Gregory a lot. Bilikoff said... Don't you ever change your rate down. He said, if you change it down, you've just destroyed your system. You keep it, and you want them to make money. You want them to benefit from their work. And, And I totally believe that. And, you know, we have incentive systems built in for watermelon harvest, for the people tying our tomatoes, um, We've tried to work on the hoeing and the field crew. We just try to pay a good minimum wage or above minimum wage for field crews. In places where we don't have incentives, it doesn't work. Then uh, we have a base wage that we feel is probably not the best. I think the minimum wage should be like twenty dollars, but right now it's it is what it is.
3: It's you're a little higher than the minimum wage. We are above in California. The minimum is fifteen. You're at sixteen to start. Yeah. And I assume that goes up as people get more skilled. What, what, uh, what's a good picker make?
0: A good picker makes $400 a day, yeah. an eight-hour day. Eight-hour day. So they're making 50 to $60 an hour. We have some, some of them that have made 500 a day. Yeah, so, and, and they get a lot done in a day. They get a lot done. <laughs> it takes a lot fewer of those workers yeah. than the ones who are getting minimum wage. Yeah. And are satisfied with 3 or 4 boxes an hour. Yeah. So it's our job to try to recruit these piece rate workers cuz they're they are the cream of the crop. Yeah. And in our area they're 99.9% Hispanic. Yeah.
3: We're having this conversation Jim cuz I I think it's not that common. Yeah. And I don't know maybe it is out here but uh what well, well, is it or or would you say that people it's unusual for somebody to
0: get paid $500. Even I don't if think you'll yet. find many, many farms in California with that kind of and the only way we're able to do that is if we know our costs. Yeah. We have to know what our costs are and, we ha- and our, the people we sell to, has to they have to know that in order for us to pay our people and recruit good people to work we have to get this price for our tomatoes. So don't come in and insult me with a low price. Yeah, Yeah. and they respect that. They do. They respect. You'd be surprised they respect it more than people who are just out there throwing numbers around seeing if one of them lands on the horseshoe.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Good, good. And and you feel that the people here also have kind of a long-term commitment to the farm?
0: I have a lot of people that have worked here. My longest-term guy, I think, has been working here 35 40 years yeah but there's a lot of them that have been working 30 years yeah and they started out picking cherry tomatoes now yeah. they're you know one's the head of the purchasing department right I mean he, he does all the buying and another one is in charge of all the field operations yeah so you know people have worked their way up but when ones my head head of all all irrigation and he's the head of maintenance yeah so there's they've worked up from Jobs that they started at entry-level, yeah. but there was a place for them to go too. and I think the hard you know The hardest thing for a lot of growers is just to, to recognize the skills that people really bring to the table Yeah, and to and to, and to allow those skills to grow. Yeah well,
3: Just a little more about your farm then I got I got kind of a different class of question But so you grow a lot of a lot of cherry tomatoes. Yeah, like a hundred acres of cherries Yeah
0: and, and some of your other crops? Um, we also grow seedless watermelon. And um, we grow alfalfa. We grow barley. We grow um, uh, winter squash. Um, we grow about four or five varieties of winter squash. Yeah. So, and then we grow asparagus. Now asparagus is a perennial crop, so it's, it's one crop that we leave in for 10 years. So that, you know, when you have asparagus in your rotation, you got to think, well, I can't rotate that into those acres until that crop comes out. So if you have a rotation, if you have 100 years, if you have 100 acres of tomatoes and you have a four year rotation on your tomatoes, you need 400 acres that you can rotate that crop through in order to just maintain a good crop rotation practices. Yeah. And you cover crop? every yeah, all the veg, all of our vegetable acres are cover cropped every year. The perennial crops of course are not. Asparagus is its own cover crop. You know, it it grows this immense fern canopy that every fall frost kills and then you, we we chop all that down and work it right into the bed. I mean, that ground out there probably has as much carbon as any area, any of the ones that we cover crop and yeah. So um, I I believe in cover cropping. I think it's the only way that we can maintain high levels of carbon and microbiology in our soils. Yeah, and it's hard in California to maintain that because you know it. You know we live in a hot, dry, arid climate, and it's not conducive to in the to a lot of. You, I'll say you have certain months in the spring and certain months in the fall when when microbiology is very active, but in the meantime. They're not. It's not really active. It's
3: summer and the winter. It's, it's kind hot. of dormant. Yeah. Too hot in the
0: summer. Earthworms all go down. Yeah. Deep. Yeah. And in the winter, it's a little bit too cold. They don't do. Everything's kind of inactive. So,
3: now you grow a lot of your cover crops in the winter months.
0: Yeah, during the winter, cover. You know, we we generally have a legume and a grass and a brassicas in our cover crop mix. Um, The the theory being that the grasses are pulling the nitrogen, available nitrogen and nutrients out of the topsoil and that the, the, uh, we rope tillage radish, it's, you know, they, they poke their root down and they crack open hard pan and they're really good for breaking open the soil and alleviating compaction and then the legumes, they're like the Johnny come lately, they kind of start fixating nitrogen because the grasses have already sucked it up and then they all kind of mature at different times and one's climbing up the other. So it's a really nice nice mix. You can become really, really diverse in your cover cropping, but sometimes too much diversity is really expensive and may get lost in just, in, in the diversity of it. So what we're doing, um, and now we've started using broccoli as a summer and, and fall cover crop because of the, uh, it has a, it has a tendency to break up the cycles of Verticillium and Fusarium that are present in our soils.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: So, uh, organic is still the exception in California agriculture, <laughs> right? You, most of your neighbors, you know, if you if you step get a quarter mile away, are they mostly conventional?
0: We have this mix, you know. We have I have a few neighbors, you know, my cousin who farms right adjoining me in a a number of fields, you know, he kind of picked up from me back in, I don't know, maybe 2009 or something. And he started, we put a lot of, I was renting some of his ground at that time and we put it all into organic and then he's renting, I'm not farming any of that ground anymore. He is, but he's keeping it organic and he's farming organically and he's growing some organic rice. And then, but then I have other neighbors who farm next door, or I was driving down the road today and he was out there spraying two, some form of 2,4-D on his uh, irrigation ditches to kill the weeds out the window of his pickup with no mask and no gloves. And I thought to myself, this is mobile insanity, you know, yeah. why would anybody choose to do this? And he's younger than me, he's probably maybe 60 or something. Yeah, I don't know so we got you know you got some people just don't pay attention you know or, or organic is a term to gain a market it's not it's not a philosophy about how we relate to the earth
3: yeah yeah so you're you're certified with the Real Organic Project you're actually on the standards board
0: yeah yeah what a coincidence uh, I worked <laughs> on CCOF standards for a long time back in the 80s so it's like <laughs> And I was, you know, it's it's been a little learning experience with the, with your your standards board because it's it's geared around you know the way CCOF farms at that time were all, you know, 10, 12 acres or maybe a large one was 30 acres, and you know the biggest arguments was about can I take the ashes out of my fireplace and put them on my garden because I've changed I, that that fertilizer has been processed <laughs> through fire. That's, you know, there was a lot of a lot of min- minutiae that was argued over <laughs> that at this time in history, nobody even remembers or cares about.
1: It. Yeah.
0: It was life or death at that time. And and yeah. I think that, you know, the, I see the organic farm movement in some ways, you know, mimicking that a little bit, the real organic. Yeah. Movement. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy to have open discussions about what it really means to relate to the earth. Do you think
3: <coughs> that the organic brand is in trouble?
0: Well, I guess it depends. I think the ethic of the organic brand is in real trouble. Um, it's kind of, I kind of closed my eyes for a lot of years and I wasn't paying too much attention. and. Then the next thing I know, um, hydroponics are certified and aquaponics. And it's capitalistic tendencies tend to reduce integrity into patterns that are easily replicable and that people can make money on. And if the integrity does not meet or cannot be reduced to those patterns, they change the integrity so it can. So it's okay, you know, so what, you, you sprayed round up there. It's not, it's not really out in the field, you know. Oh, you know, it's okay to, you know, call something that's not soil organic that's grown in unsoil. So, you know, I think that we've the more we compromise the term, the less the term means. And I'm I think we're at a point, a turning point in the history of the organic movement that we either put our foot down or we just step out of the way. Hmm. And so, you know, we can decide. Us growers who are experienced, you know, a lot of it's in our it's on our the ball's in our court right now. We have to decide if we're going to allow this to hap- continue to happen or we're going to stand. And I've been, I, you know, the, organic, the real organic program, I've just been so inspired by the integrity of the people who have decided that, you know, they're going to throw their hat in the ring and they're not going to, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more <laughs> type of attitude. Um can I change the subject just a minute? Absolutely. Okay. You know, I most of us grew up in a Judean-Christian heritage of some sort. And if you haven't, you were probably influenced by it, if you, even if you don't know it. And you know, the, the I'm not a real Christian-type person or anything, but I do believe there's a lot of wisdom in the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, especially the New Testament. And in the Garden of Eden, the word Adam is derived from the Hebrew word for humus, Mm. and it's kind of interesting that um, our relationship to the Garden of Eden is that um, we are there to manage the humus, and we are there to be stewards of the planet as, as a species, we're not to monopolize it, we're not to to reign over it, we're there to see ourselves as being connected. And um, in the New Testament, the idea that um, you treat your neighbor as yourself, we've always limited that down to homo sapiens. Mm. But really our neighbor is the earth. And our neighbor is that tree, and the neighbor is that watermelon, and the neighbor is our rock, and the neighbor is our streams. And if we treat them as if we would want to be treated, we wouldn't be spraying them with 2,4-D. So I think we, the heritage that we've inherited through our cultures, there's a lot of wisdom there that has been manipulated to mean something other than what it was intended in its original form. And that's my, that's my theology.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) You know, I feel that there's a big discussion going on inside all of us. And, you know, we're, we're we're all, as you say, we have these values that come from all over a long time. That you know, David Bronner said, you know, all religions are really the same in that in the, 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 they have the values you talk about, which is, you know, love the earth as thyself. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we also have this part that, you know, wants to make a buck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in a world in which there's tremendous, even respect given to, like, well, who made the most money? <laughs> and we're wrestling with this inside each of us. And, of course, in a culture, we see this tremendous debate. I think the debate is whether we will destroy the planet as being habitable to
0: humans. Yeah, It's a serious, it's a serious debate. Yeah. You know, it's, (laughs) it's been going on probably, I don't know where I'd say it started, but there's two diametrically, is that the right word, Mm -hmm. opposing thoughts in in Homo sapiens. One is that The earth is nothing but abundance, and there's plenty for everybody. This comes out of Judeo-Christian heritage too. There's plenty for everybody if you don't take more than you need and you give back whatever you don't need. And the other is that the earth is really about scarcity. And so our job growing up is to go out and make sure we get our share, which has, I think, in history has promoted colonialism Um, It's promoted warfare. It's probably everything that we despise about uh, our our own cultures has come from... Capitalism is built out of the fact that get a good job so you can go out and make sure you get your share. It's not like get a good job, so you can share what you have with other people, because that's really, that's the philosophy of abundance. So when you have these two diametrically opposing um, thoughts that are at war in our culture around the world, not just Western culture, it's in all cultures. I think until we embrace the fact that the table is big enough for all of us to sit at, and we embrace the idea that abundance is there for all to partake of and to enjoy, we are never going to be at peace with ourselves or with each other. Yeah.
3: You, you said something to me earlier. I was really struck by you said, I, "I don't own the land. We're all just renting it while we're here." Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
0: I'd probably be called a socialist, but I think I think that um, I don't think land should be something that's handed down from generation to generation. I think that you have, if your if your father farmed it, bought this land, or he farmed it, then you have to prove yourself worthy of farming it and, and taking care of it in order for you to take it. Inherited how much wealth around the world is passed on from generation to generation. You know, it's it's sad that there's so much wealth that if it was spread around evenly, everybody would be wealthy. But when we concentrate it all in one one small group of people, like what are like 10% of the world people own 80% of the wealth of the world. It's sad that we've allowed it to come to that, and I think the organic movement is a way I hope it's a way of addressing that in a very practical way that you know we, we are not going to we've had all we can stand and we can't stand no more. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to allow ourselves to be walked on by people who have whatever wealth that they feel like they're entitled to. yeah. I don't want to get into no,
3: that. No, no, that's great. <laughs> you, you you said when we were talking earlier, you said that Leah Panman had said some things that that were important to you, that that you uh, appreciated her eloquence about things that you felt
0: very much in your heart. Could yeah. could you just talk well, about one, that? For one one was, um, of course, uh, the injustice of raciality, and um, you know we we pride ourselves as being a uh, a nation of immigrants but in the, you know sure we all my my grandparents and my wife's grandparents and great-grandparents they all immigrated here freely but not everybody came here on sitting in first class on a ship a lot of them came in the hulls and they did not come here by choice and they did not come here of their own free will and when they got here they were not treated as if they were human beings they were treated less than human beings and then we have the audacity as a culture to say well we've given everybody a same chance it's never worked that way there's no there's no racial equality so i think you know in terms of black farmers you know they've they've probably been mistreated in the same way there's it's just ingrained in our social system how to treat one race different than another. Look at all the immigrants sitting at the border. You know, it's, I hate to say it, but there's some injustice going on there. And, you know, I understand the ideas of people who want to keep the borders shut, but the borders weren't shut when my grandparents walked across the bridge. (laughs) How come they're shut now? You know, well, you know, it goes back to scarcity and abundance. Well, there's not enough room for them here. There's not enough food. You know, it's like we gotta protect our, our. We gotta protect what we have. But if you, if we think about the fact that there's plenty for everybody, then we start looking for ways to open those gates to let those who need safety and a place of justice to come, because that's. That's what this country is about. It's about justice for all. Yeah. And Leah, you know, I think the fact that, you know, she's kind of, you know, got involved in agriculture and she's training, you know, youth and other people. I think, you know, that's that's what we all are about. No matter where we are, we're all about growing the seeds of the next generation and growing them in a healthy way. And I feel that that's, that's, I, I admire people who do that. Yeah, yeah,
3: well, you know, one of the things I, I, I get to read a lot of people because I try to read books before I interview people and, you know, I, I'm, I'm really uh, amazed that we were talking about Michael Pollan, he was so eloquent in describing uh, our, our problem, our dilemma, you know, <laughs> our, the omnivores dilemma, and he really did a good job. What I feel the Real Organic Project is trying to do is to go, well, how do we resolve that dilemma? How do we move towards you know, the society that we want, the ecology that we want? You know, um, Do you think that we can do that? Do you think it's worth trying?
0: Well, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question. <laughs> I don't know who else That's is. That's a big We're, question. Yeah, yeah. It's a big question, yeah, I know. it's a big question. Um, with that old saying, if not now, when? If not, If not, you know, if not me, who? And I think those are the questions we need to be asking that. We can't keep passing the buck off to the next generation. And we found that with climate change. It's going to catch up with us pretty soon. We have to deal with the roots of, of some of these issues, or where, and acknowledge where where they came from, and how how they happened, and and and, and write history so that that's what it, you know it's stated in history, so that we all can come to a new plane or level of understanding with each other and how we're going to live together. And you know the, what was happening on January 6th you know at our state at our federal capital it made me sick that you know that this was going on in a country that was supposed to be built on justice and how can the last, you know, I don't want to go there, that's a, that's a whole different, that's a whole different subject, but um, I'm, I'm always, I've I've always thought that, and my mother instilled this in me as, my mother was a social justice act advocate, and I were, I'm a member of the, I'm on the food, of the board of the Yolo Food Bank, and I'm also a member of a local community development corporation, and my response to whenever people ask me to do anything is I always say yes before I say no because in saying no, you've already shut a door. In saying yes, you've at least kept the door open to think about it. And I think that um, we we spend too much time attached to our electronics and attached to our shares. And it's part of the scarcity. It's part of the reward when you buy into the scarcity philosophy. Is that you get to sit back and watch television and you don't have to think about deep things anymore. And I think that that's something our culture has lost out on, you know. And and it's coming back though, because deep things can't be lost. They're like, they're kind of like the ring and Lord of the Rings. (laughs) It always keeps coming to be found. (laughs) So that deep thing is coming back and it's coming back and. People like Leah, and I think a whole new generation that is going to reevaluate why we do what we do, and is that the best way to do it? Yeah. So there's hope there. All
3: right. <laughs> Jim Durst, thank you very much for talking with me today. It's
0: been a great pleasure. <laughs> thank you, Dave.
2: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe. Tell your friends and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 73. Please join us next time when our guest is Bob Quinn, an organic grain farmer from Montana who helped introduce Kamut and other ancient grains as a way of converting farmers to organic in the United States. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask our favorite authors your questions. See you next time.